I'm Remington Anthony Campbell, and this is the History of Musical Theatre podcast. At the request of my wonderful mum, I am going to be doing a brief summary of the previous episodes. Episode 1. We discussed whether or not Oklahoma was in fact the first musical. The results was a resounding no. Yeah, inconclusive on that front, but conclusive on the fact that Oklahoma was important. Episode 2 was a brief discussion of the not-yet-musical-theatre industry that existed pre-Oklahoma. The industry had all kinds of subgenres, but the most important two were operetta and musical comedy. Operetta is the baby sister of opera, the arias are a little easier, and the stories featured fewer deity interventions. Musical comedy is the non-integrated musical. The songs don't really move the plot along, they don't necessarily inform character, but they are fun. I don't think anyone who's seen Anything Goes could disagree with that. In episode 3, we met Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart. They worked predominantly in musical comedy, although their first big success, The Garrett Gaieties, was a review. And it was at the Theatre Guild, which is important. They wrote a bunch of shows, about one a year. Unfortunately, Hart had some alcohol issues and became more and more difficult to work with. Episode 4 introduced us to Oscar Hammerstein II and the Hammerstynasty. His grandfather bought and lost a number of theatres, making his father a little apprehensive to let him go into theatre. He did anyway. He worked with a lot of collaborators on a lot of projects, which had mixed success. And finally, episode 5, we went through the history of both the Guild Theatre and Teresa Helburn, the unsung hero of Oklahoma. She was the producer and the person who brought together the team. After piecing together a long list of musical theatre luminaries, the opportunity to adapt Green Grow the Lilacs was offered to Rogers and Hart. Hammerstein was slated to write the book, or the script. Hart turned it down, leaving instead for Mexico, and Rogers asked Hammerstein to write the lyrics. Hart would die soon after this. The other recap is that I had some good rest, went to the doctors, got an assignment in, slept a lot and did some early groundwork on upcoming projects. That being said, I'm excited to return to the wonderful world of Oklahoma. Ruben Mamoulian, or Mamou, as we're going to call him because that's what his friends called him, and we'd be friends, and I'm also bad at names, so maybe we wouldn't, was the odd man out on the production team. Rogers, Hammerstein, Helburn, and DeMille were all born and bred Americans. Cosmopolitan, to be sure, but American. Ruben was born into a reasonably wealthy Armenian family in Georgia. Not Atlanta, Georgia. Eastern Bloc, Georgia. And his initial theatrical training was in Moscow, studying the Stanislavski method. Or, you know, just the method if you speak pretentious actor. Welcome to today's episode of Musical Theatre History is just regular theatre history, but with tap shoes. The Moscow Art Theatre, i.e. Stanislavski Land, taught Rubin three important things. One is details. Stephen Sondheim will later write about how, when it comes to writing musicals, God is in the details. But Mamou learnt this first under Stanislavski. 
Number two is how to understand the beats or rhythms of a script. Beats within music is obvious, but the term beat is used in theatre to express either a pause or a change. And the use of these beats creates a pace and a rhythm to a scene. Beyond that, some theatre is explicitly metered, like much of Shakespeare, which uses iambic pentameter, the da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum. The sky, it seems, would pour down stinking pitch. That's just a line from The Tempest that I love that demonstrates iambic pentameter really well. Who knows, maybe one day I'll do a proper Shakespeare tutorial. The third thing Mamu learnt was how to handle crowds on stage. Each of these three things would be crucially important to the construction of Oklahoma and musical theatre more broadly. The specificity, the timing, the chorus. Mamu couldn't get too comfortable though, because after this there was a bit of Russian revolutioning, which was not great for wealthy people. Or poor people. But we're talking about Mamu. He returned briefly to his hometown of something I can't say. Tbilisi. 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 100% accurate. Words are hard. (laughs) There, he co-founded a small theatre company. But the revolution continued to press outwards. On and on. And next for Reuben was London. And some success on the West End followed by New York. He stated fairly explicitly that he wasn't a political refugee. He'd come to New York to study music. But he also couldn't go back to Russia or to Georgia. His wealthy family and bougie arts education didn't exactly make Soviet Russia safe for him. Mamou was fairly unique as a director because he worked in film and on stage. Basically an absolute mad He spent a few years making films, revolutionising that industry. I'm not going to talk for ages about his film work, because this isn't a film podcast, and I'm not knowledgeable enough to make one. Ask someone else. But he was notable in film for his use of movement, and he worked to integrate different elements together, making films a little less clunky, a little smoother, working within the confines of the technology as it was to make some pretty impressive films. In New York, he headed the Eastman School of Music's opera program for a few years, and then the Theatre Guild's acting school for a year. He then staged a lot of shows at the Guild. Notable among these is the play Porgy, and the musical, or operetta, maybe, Porgy and Bess. The latter is based on the former. Memu wasn't Hellburn involved with the guilds, but he definitely worked there a lot. He went back and forth between York and Los Angeles. He worked on the film Rings on Her Fingers in the early 1940s, and then didn't find any of the available projects that interesting. So he returned to New York, and Teresa had the perfect project waiting for him. Oklahoma. The final member of the production team I'm going to talk about is Agnes DeMille. 
I have very much enjoyed reading a few of her books. She was a very prolific writer later in life, and so I will be quoting her quite often. Not just in this podcast, but, you know, in life in general. If you run into me, Agnes DeMille quotes. Agnes was born into a known, if not famous, famous family. In this way, she was similar to Oscar Hammerstein. Her maternal grandfather was a respected economist. Her father was a playwright, William Churchill DeMille. And her uncle was a director, Cecil B. DeMille. She grew up predominantly in Los Angeles, around the new emerging film industry. Not afraid to share her honest opinions, she wrote of her uncle in her biography, Dance the Piper, and certainly as a director of mass movement. This century has not seen his like. I have worked with many, including some dude, Mamoulian, other guys, and what's-his-face. I may have changed the quote slightly to emphasise the point I'm making. Uncle Cecil was a better director than Mamou, in Agnes's opinion. Famous and intelligent people frequently passed through the DeMille household, a mixture of the early Hollywood's who's who's and single taxes. Agnes's mother was an adamant single taxer, meaning that she thought all tax should come from a single source, land tax. None of this GST nonsense in the DeMille household. Notably missing from the first group, the Hollywood luminaries, was actors. Despite working with actors, or maybe because of it, William couldn't stand them. He considered them unintelligent and even anti-intellectual, with very few exceptions. Charlie Chaplin being one. In spite of this, Agnes wanted to be an actress. The DeMille family, particularly spurred on by Agnes's mother Anna, was a hard-working one. If you had a moment, you should be using it productively. Agnes recalled that her mother would have her and her sister Margaret pray in French, not because her mother spoke French, she didn't, but because, you know, two for one. Practice your French and God still understands. Everything changed for Agnes, though, when she went to see Anna Pavlova. In her own words, Anna Pavlova, my life stops as I write this name, across the daily preoccupation of lessons, lunchboxes, toothbrushings, and quarrelings with Margaret, flashed this bright, unworldly experience, and burned in a single afternoon a path over which I could never retrace my steps. Kind of a big deal. Anna Pavlova was a ballerina who toured extensively. She was known for being a great performer, even if she wasn't a great technician. It turns out being inspired to become a dancer by Anna Pavlova is not a unique experience for dancers of that era. More on that in a minute. After seeing Pavlova perform, Agnes knew that dancing was her dream. If her father disliked actors... Dancers were worse. The young Mr. Mill begged to be able to take ballet classes, but was not allowed. Over the next few years, though, she would take every opportunity to dance, particularly in little backyard shows with her sister. I myself was a notable performer in the lounge room circuit. 
I performed at my house and my aunt's house and my grandparents' house and lots of my friends' houses. Lounge room concerts are a great art form in of themselves. In a lucky turn of fate, Agnes's sister Margaret was found to have flat feet. Maybe not lucky for Margaret, but lucky for Agnes. The doctor recommended that Margaret take ballet to improve her feet. And the DeMille girls did everything together. So Agnes began ballet at the age of 14. She had the wrong figure, started late, and couldn't take as many classes as she wanted. But she was undeterred, practicing every day in her mother's bathroom. She also found out that she was quite good at pantomime. After a little bit, she went with the ballet school to see Anna Pavlova again, and this time she went backstage. Anna Pavlova gave her a rose, which she would keep in a box for years to come, even after it had long dried out. Throughout her career, Agnes would hear the same story from many other dancers. By her own estimation, about one in twelve. Since dance was not viewed as an acceptable career path, and she didn't have the training to take the traditional route anyway. She studied English at the University of California, while continuing to dance as much as she could. The years studying English didn't dampen or deter her though, and she went to England to continue studying ballet. This was a really pivotal time in ballet history. In a sentence, the Russian greats were training the generation who would start the major companies, and Agnes DeMille was in the middle of it. She would study under Marie Rambert at the Ballet Club in London, as well as Anthony Tudor's London Ballet. She returned to America in 1938, to New York. She would choreograph Black Ritual for the Ballet Theatre, which would later become known as American Ballet Theatre, or ABT. She choreographed it for their Negro unit, which was made up of 16 African-American dancers. This was actually the first time that black dancers had performed in a white ballet company. Agnes's main work in her pre-Oklahoma years, though, were her concerts. Her skills in pantomime and choreography would come together to create a series of short solo character pieces, which she would perform on tours. During this time, someone told her, you're more than a dancer, you're an actor. But she didn't want that. She didn't want to be an actor. To be an actor was less than to be a dancer. She went across America and Europe performing these concerts, which were bankrolled predominantly by her now separated parents. Her mother as well was hugely involved, cleaning stage floors, sewing costumes, and any other odd job that needed to be done. Anna DeMille lived out the work ethic she instilled in her children. After years of concerts, Agnes created her first major, significant, life-changing work, Rodeo. It was created for the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Her choreography was an expanded version of one of her concert characters, and it included steps taken from tap and other American folk dancers, which greatly upset the Russians in the room. While she was preparing this ballet, she heard whispers of a new show being created at the Guild. 
a cowboy musical. Well, she was creating a cowboy ballet. She got in touch with the team at the Guild and asked them, please, to hold off picking a choreographer until after Rodeo had premiered. Until after they'd seen her show. There was some doubt about whether she would be able to handle the rigours of Broadway choreography. The timelines were a lot shorter than what ballet companies allowed. But she was eventually offered the job and set off back on tour with the Ballet Rouge de Monte Carlo with folders ready to start her pre-production notes for Oklahoma, which would go into rehearsals after she returned home. Next week, we're going to be talking about the production itself. How was it cast? How was it written? How was it choreographed? What was opening night like? And all of that. Until then, I hope you have oh such a wonderful day. One paper I read was a review of the book On My Way, The Untold Story of Ruben Mamoulian, George Gershwin, and Porgy and Bess. And it had something really interesting to say about how we remember history in the theatrical arts. He begins, For better or worse, the history of musical theatre has been written chiefly from the standpoint of the composer, an approach which acknowledges both the primacy of the printed score and the power of music to enhance the story. A handful of librettists, perhaps only Oscar Hammerstein II on Broadway, have garnered equal standing with their musical partners, but almost every other creative contributor has remained anonymous to all but the most dedicated students of the theatre. Even directors, whose job it is to bring the work of all of these collaborators together, tend to toil in relative obscurity, with only a handful ever developing public identities. I know that's a long quote, and if I'd submitted that as part of an essay for university, I may have gotten in trouble. But the sentiment really spoke to me. Massive thanks to Scott Warfield for writing that. One of the things I really want to do here is include the stories, to the extent that I'm able, of other creatives involved in these projects. Oscar Hammerstein II once said something to the extent of, if you don't like collaborating, write a book. Theatre is an inherently collaborative art. Showing these collaborators was a large part of the reason for the last episode and for this episode, and I promise I'm going to be talking even more about them in episodes and seasons to come. This also feels like a good time to say another massive thank you to my collaborators, um, to Ollie for editing, and for Harvey for playing the violin on all of our little musical interludes, and to Matt for just being wonderful. In our next episode, the production begins, and we will be following all of some of the backstage goss. Until then, I hope you have oh such a wonderful day.